Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. During the 2016 presidential campaign and since he became president, Donald Trump has called for policies aimed at limiting the inflow of immigrants and refugees into America and deporting as many undocumented persons as possible. He's proposed building a new wall along the U.S.-Mexico border, hiring more immigration and border patrol personnel, and implementing new restrictions on entrants from certain Muslim-majority countries. A lot of ink has been spilled and words exchanged about these issues, from the courts to the streets to cable TV. But there's an important question that stands alongside the politics, the economics, and the law, and that is, could the Trump administration and the U.S. government actually implement any of these policies? Joining me in the studio today to address the implementation challenges of these policies is senior fellow Elaine Kmark. She is the founding director of the Center for Effective Public Management and author of the Brookings Institution Press book, Why Presidents Fail and How They Can Succeed Again. Stay tuned during the interview for another installment of Wessel's Economic Update. You can keep up to date with the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. And now on with the interview. Elaine, welcome back to the Brookings Cafeteria. Thank you, Fred. You've written a new paper with John Hudak and Christine Stenglein, just published by the Center for Effective Public Management, and it's titled Hitting the Wall on Immigration, Campaign Promises Clash with Policy Realities. So it strikes me as the clash between what was said and what's really uh, possible in terms of implementation. Well, that's right. I mean, we took Donald Trump's campaign promises seriously in this. This is not a paper that, you know, comes down on either side of his campaign promises. But we just looked at um, how they would be implemented and what's going on now. And one of the problems we find is that many of his promises are exceedingly difficult to actually do. And it's not even a matter of money. It's not a matter of political will. It's just that some of his assumptions behind those promises were based on faulty perceptions of what was happening. Well, we're going to walk through the four questions that you explore in the paper. I just want to mention those at the top, and then we'll go into each one. Those are building the wall. The next one is the Department of Homeland Security hiring more personnel for the Customs and Border Protection Agency, and also ICE, which is the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency. That's number two. Number three is what Donald Trump has called extreme vetting of refugees. And number four is how to measure the success of any of these. So let's go into these in turn on the wall. Let me first ask you, do you think candidate Trump and now President Trump really meant that he wants to build a literal wall where a wall doesn't already exist? from the Pacific to the Gulf of Mexico along the U.S.-Mexico border. Well, it seems as if he does mean that. I mean, he continually repeats it, okay? And he's got some of his people at the Department of Homeland Security looking into it, doing feasibility studies. The last time people thought about this was in the George W. Bush administration, and they talked about a virtual wall because of the physical difficulties of building an actual wall. And that project called SBI Net died a rather 
you know, quiet death just because it was costing millions and millions of dollars. And nobody, including, by the way, the Republicans in Congress, thought we were getting our money's worth for it. So there's sort of two questions, right? One is, can you build a physical wall? And the other question is, is this worth the money that it takes? Are there better ways to fight illegal immigration? On the second question, is it worth the money? You cite some various cost estimates of building a wall from the sea to the Gulf. How would the Department of Homeland Security even study the cost effectiveness? What does that kind of look, look like? Well, years ago when SBI net died or when it was in trouble, Congress said to the department, look, why don't you do a cost-benefit analysis of how much the wall would help versus other tactics for fighting illegal immigration? And that process never really began because the sequester happened, and the sequester cut out the money for that. So the first thing we don't really know is, is the wall worth the money? Or is the money better put in, say, tracking people who come here and overstay their visas, which seems to be a much bigger source of illegal immigration than people coming over the Mexican border? In fact, in the past few years, I've seen data that suggests that there has been a net, I guess, return of immigrants, migrants from Mexico, back across the U.S. border to the south instead of coming to the north. Well, that's right. I mean, you know, part of the thing that's amusing about or sort of misleading about Donald Trump's campaign promises is that, in fact, over time, the number of illegal immigrants has declined and the number of Mexicans as a proportion of that whole has declined. So put it this way, he ran a campaign that led people to believe that we were being overcome with immigrants, illegal immigrants from Mexico and refugees from Syria, all of whom were committing crimes. And none of that is true. Another really interesting point that you make in the paper is that if this project were to proceed, it would be a massive public works project. It would obviously need a lot of laborers to build it. And where would those laborers come from? <laughs> well, that's kind of the funny part of this, right, is that even perfectly mundane projects these days use a lot of immigrant labor, and frankly, they use a lot of illegal immigrant labor. So if you're sending everybody home, you're going to create a shortage in the labor force. When the Department of Labor measures people who are engaged in the construction trades, there's a higher percentage of immigrants in construction trades than there are of native-born Americans. So when the legal ones go home and the illegal ones go home, you could find yourself with quite a labor shortage. Now, even if all of the challenges to implementation that we've discussed so far can be met and overcome, there's this additional question, which is at the intersection of not only politics, but at the law, and that's eminent domain. Can you explain what that issue is all about? Yeah, eminent domain refers to the government's right to take land, essentially from private individuals. And a lot of the border that a wall would be built on is in Texas, and much of this is in private hands. People, you know, individual families own it, sometimes for generations. And as you can imagine, the Republican Party especially has been really angry over the whole concept of eminent domain for many years. This And the last time the federal government tried building along the border, Congress passed a law against eminent domain. Now, it, it held up in the courts, but the fact of the matter is 
that you know Republican members of Congress particularly are really oppose this, not to mention Republican voters like the ones in Texas who voted for Donald Trump. So if he started taking large swaths of land from individual citizens, I think he'd have a political hornet's nest on his hands. We're going to move on from the wall to some of the other issues. But first, I want to tell listeners that this new paper, Hitting the Wall, is adding to the body of research that already exists at Brookings. You can go to our website and find not only this paper, but if you search for the work of Vonda Feldbaugh-Brown and others, you will find more research and commentary about issues related to the wall and the U.S.-Mexico border. So moving on to issues of border protection and immigration enforcement, one of the factors that comes out is those two agencies that you focus on, ICE, which is Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and CBP, Customs and Border Protection, are both agencies under the Department of Homeland Security. Could you very briefly give us some background on the Department of Homeland Security and its scope, its size, these kinds of issues? Well, it was founded in 2003, and it was really a combination of 22 different federal agencies. And the biggest piece of that department are the agencies that have traditionally worked at the border. Okay, so immigrations and customs. The interesting thing for our conversation here is that beginning in 2007, you have an enormous increase in the number of agents on the border, both ICE and CBP. And that rises dramatically, including into the Obama administration. In other words, it starts in the Bush administration, but it continues in the Obama administration. And then it levels off in 2013 and 14 and declines slightly. So there has already been a big increase. Now, President Trump would like to see more agents, but it's unclear if the department has the capacity to use those agents. Clearly, more is always better, but he's talking about numbers in the 15,000 range. Between the two agencies. Between the two agencies, yeah, and that may be problematic. There is not a pool of people who are interested, who have law enforcement backgrounds, who can pass a rigorous security check, because after all, the last place you want somebody who's a terrorist is on the border patrol, right? And who is willing to live in rural, dusty Texas near the border. It's a very unpopulated place, and for good reason, right? So if you take those three together, the hiring And there's a long lag in hiring, which the department has done a much better job at shortening, but there's a lag for a reason. You have to thoroughly investigate these people, and they have to have the right background, law enforcement or military is the usual backgrounds, and then be willing to take the jobs. And that pool is just simply not very big. Let's take a short break for another installment of Wessel's Economic Update. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. Of all the many economic statistics that the U.S. government churns out, one of the most important may be one of the least well understood, productivity, the amount of stuff we produce for every hour of work. Productivity growth is the magic elixir of rising living standards. Productivity growth is the reason we have more goods and services than our grandparents did, even though we don't work more hours. Productivity growth is key to how fast the economy and wages can grow over time. Economists sometimes talk about the speed limit rate of economic growth, how fast the economy can grow over time without generating unwelcome inflation. That's simply the sum of two numbers, productivity growth and growth in the labor force. 
Now, the best guess these days is that the economy can grow at about 2% a year, more or less. To get more than that, we'll need faster productivity growth. First, a bit of history. Productivity grew rapidly for a quarter century after World War II, so rapidly that living standards doubled in a single generation. Then it slowed sharply around 1973 for another quarter century. Then we had a welcome surge in productivity growth for about a decade between 1995 and 2004, but unfortunately that didn't last. Productivity growth has been painfully slow for the past couple of years, and even if it perks up a bit, say to the pace that the Federal Reserve expects, it'll take more than 70 years, close to three generations, for living standards to double. So a few questions. One, should we believe the statistics? After all, isn't it hard to add up all the goods and services in the ever-changing economy, the improvements in healthcare, the way the iPhone has replaced cameras and maps and all that? Short answer, we are mismeasuring productivity. We can and should do better, but it's hard to believe that we are mismeasuring it so much that we're mistaking recent trends. Two, are we doomed to a generation of lousy productivity growth? Some experts think so. Robert Gordon at Northwestern University say the wonders of the Internet and the iPhone aren't nearly as potent economically as the arrival of electricity and cars. But I was cheered to see recently that a couple of other economists, Dan Sickle and Lee Branstetter, are much more optimistic. They think the official data don't properly record all the seeds of innovation and investment that are being planted today, and they expect them to pay off in the near future in more efficient healthcare, in smarter robots, in e-learning that'll make education better. Three, wait a minute. Doesn't faster productivity growth mean fewer jobs? After all, the more efficient a factory, the fewer hours of labor it needs. Yes, productivity growth can often eliminate jobs in industries that are harnessing technology most aggressively. For an economy as a whole, however, history suggests productivity growth is actually good for employment as workers or their kids move to new industries and higher incomes mean more spending and more jobs. That's what happened when we mechanized farms and workers moved to factories. But could this time be different? Could we run out of jobs now as robots and artificial intelligence take over? Hmm, we could. I don't think that's the likely outcome. But that brings us to question four. When productivity grows, does everyone share in the prosperity? The answer is emphatically no, and that's a big issue. To quote from a new paper by David Otter, an MIT economist, many of the new jobs created by an increasingly automated economy do not offer a stable, sustainable standard of living. While many of the highly paid jobs, the ones that are strongly complemented by advancing technology, are out of reach to workers without a college education. In other words, the nature of recent productivity growth is widening the gap between winners and losers in the job market. And finally, five, what role does public policy play in all this? The truth is, we don't know with certainty how to increase the pace of productivity growth, but there's good reason to think we'd be better off with more investment in basic research and infrastructure, better education, a tax code that does more to encourage investment and less to encourage game playing, continued immigration of the best and the brightest around the world, smarter regulation. But we also know that technology and globalization can boost prosperity as a whole, but that lately the fruits of that prosperity have gone disproportionately to the folks at the top. And we haven't done enough to help individuals and communities that are adversely affected by this rapid change. As my colleague, the former Fed chairman, Ben Bernanke, put it recently, sometimes growth is not enough. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. 
can listen to more from David Wessel on our SoundCloud channel. And now, back to my interview with Elaine Kmark. I want to review those numbers on the lag in hiring. I think they're fascinating. For an ICE agent, the average hiring time was 1,161 days in 2012. That's been decreased to 212 days. For CBP, the average time was 505 days to hire new personnel in 2012, and that's dropped to 221 days as of FY 2015. And then you're right, each agency takes about seven months to hire new agents. Yeah. And that's, again, because of the background checks, right? I mean, the background checks, it's been a longstanding management problem in the government that we don't have enough people to do the security clearances. And, of course, in the Bush administration, they outsourced that to a private company. That's how we got a lot of problems as a result of that. So this really is a problem of getting these security clearances done and getting them done quickly. And, frankly, even if you add more resources, it's still a very time-consuming thing. You know, think about interviewing everybody that you know, right? All your neighbors, right? Going through all your financial records, making sure that you're not vulnerable to blackmail by a terrorist organization or by a foreign power. I mean, it really is quite extensive. And then there's the issue of you actually have to pay all these new agents. President Trump's two executive orders that directed the department to hire these additional agents references or uses the phrase subject to available appropriations. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the rub, I suppose. Yeah, there's what, the rub. <laughs> what would it cost to hire 15,000 additional agents? And is there money in the federal government to do that? Uh, it would cost an enormous amount of money. And in fact, such that it would exceed current budgets by large amounts. So far, Congress has not seemed very interested in doing this, okay? In other words, a Republican Congress hasn't been very interested in doing this. Um, And again, part of this is that nobody really knows what's the most effective thing to spend money on. I think that President Trump has raised this issue, you know, sufficiently, that he could probably get large increases. But What we don't know, and the reason I think there's going to be continuing congressional resistance, is we don't know where to spend the money. We don't know where it is best spent. And this whole notion of a physical, beautiful wall, as President Trump talks about it, people who do this work are very skeptical that that's the magic bullet. Well, let's move on to the question of refugees. The Trump administration, very early in its time, issued what it has sometimes called and sometimes not called a travel ban from select Muslim-majority countries that was stopped by the courts. There was another executive order issued that also has been set up by the courts. And we heard the rhetoric from candidate and now President Trump on refugees, about extreme vetting. So this question of extreme vetting comes up a lot. And when I read your paper, I learned about something called the UNHCR, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, 865432 process. What is the 865432 (laughs) process? Well, the current protocol for getting a refugee into the United States involves reviews by 
eight U.S. federal government agencies, six different security databases, five separate background checks, four biometric security checks, three separate in-person interviews, two interagency security checks. The entire process is conducted abroad before people are here and can take up to two years. Now, that's pretty extreme. I'm sure you can make it probably more extreme, but it kind of belies the notion that the United States was just letting in people that we don't know anything about. That's just not the case when it comes to refugees. And on this podcast, I've talked to a lot of other experts about the refugee crisis and solutions to the refugee problem. I encourage listeners to go hear those. It's a very interesting and challenging problem. In your paper, you actually identify a perhaps better way to spend all the attention and resources when it comes to thinking about refugees and who we let in, rather than just a blanket, a ban, or increased vetting, if you will, on certain Muslim nations. What is the alternative to that? The alternative is to add resources to the visa process at the beginning, that We really are overrun in many embassies around the world with just too many people wanting visas. The lines are long. The State Department officials are usually young, brand-new Foreign Service officers without a lot of experience. If we increased our capacity to check people out before we give them a visa— And then we increased our capacity to follow people on time-limited visas once they're in the United States. We could probably increase our security a lot more. The refugee process is already a very difficult and bureaucratic and time-consuming process, as it should be. And very few people actually get in the country. In fact, the Cato Institute, which is hardly a liberal or democratic mouthpiece, estimates that an individual in the United States has a one in over 3.6 billion chance of being killed by a refugee in a terror incident. I mean, we just don't have enough refugees here, right, to be a threat. And I think when Trump was on the campaign trail, he was conflating the situation in Europe with the situation here. In Europe, refugees are coming over land borders, and they're coming in great numbers, and they're sneaking into Europe, etc. We have two oceans, you know, and two friendly countries, and we just don't have the influx of refugees that they have Our security holes actually turn out to be in the visa process and in the number of people that we admit to the United States perfectly legally and then who stay here and sometimes commit crimes in the case of the 9-11 hijackers. Some of them are terrorists. Okay, we need to be a lot better on those aspects of it. And the refugee crisis is, you know, serious. But it is not a security concern in the way that I think the president has made it out to be. Well, you you write in the paper uh, that, uh, quote, you have to admit that President Trump is right on one point. No one knows exactly how many unauthorized immigrants there are in the U.S., unquote. (laughs) So some some sources have cited 11 million. Some have cited 13 million. Uh, But does the number really matter? If it's 11 or 13 million, I mean, what's the most important thing we should understand sort of from a process and implementation point of view about the undocumented population in the U.S.? Well, I think the most important thing to understand is that we don't really know how many undocumented um 
immigrants are here, but there are things that we do know. We do know, for instance, how many um, immigrants we've removed from the United States for criminal activity, okay? And those are large numbers. Uh, starting in 2000, um, 2010, more than half of everybody we've removed has a criminal record. And if you think about it for a minute, uh, if you sneak into this country illegally, you are not apt to volunteer to people that you're here illegally, right? And you're, you don't want it known. You try to hide that. Well, how does it become known? It becomes known when you get in trouble with the law. So we deport, actually, a lot of criminals. And it just makes sense that those are the ones that come into the system and that we managed to find. So the notion that the president perpetuated in his... Um, you know, in his campaign, that somehow we had an overflow of immigrants and they were committing crimes and we were letting them stay here just isn't borne out by the numbers. So what's going to have to happen, the reason the numbers are important is that the first number of the, the total number, we don't really know, although we do have methods of estimating. But there are two other numbers that I we do know with some precision. How many immigrants are removed from the United States and how many are removed for criminal behavior? And I think in a couple of years, Donald Trump is going to have to show improvement in those numbers. That may be difficult to do. It strikes me as uh, this issue of measuring success as going back to the to the proposition in the title of this paper, the clash between campaign promises and policy realities. You can say anything you want to say on the campaign trail, but when you're governing, you need to implement policies that you can measure. So, um, and this also probably ties into your book, why presidents fail and how they can succeed again. How how does a president like Donald Trump in this administration? Um, demonstrate success in these areas, or or can they? Well, I mean, I think in this area, Donald Trump is going to have to show that he is removing significantly more um, undocumented people than Obama did and Bush did before Obama. Now, since those numbers were fairly high and going up, um, and then they leveled off a little bit, and the reason they leveled off was that after the big U.S. recession, a lot of immigrants went home because, after all, the reason they come here is jobs. And when there's no jobs, uh, people go home. So we, we've, had, we've seen some decreases in those numbers already. And the question is, can Donald Trump find enough um, to make those numbers look spectacular? Or does he have to admit that, in fact— Bush and Obama before him were actually doing the job. Well, the paper is titled Hitting the Wall on Immigration, Campaign Promises Clash with Policy Realities. It's a fascinating paper. Elaine, I want to thank you for sharing your time and expertise today. Thank you for having me. You can learn more about Elaine K. Mark's research and download this paper on our website, brookings.edu. Hey, listeners, want to ask an expert a question? You can by sending an email to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you attach an audio file, I'll play it on the air. And I'll get an expert to answer and include it in an upcoming episode. Thanks to all of you who have sent in questions already.
And that does it for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria, brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Ribeiro, with assistance from Mark Holscher. Vanessa Sauter is the producer. Bill Finan does the book interviews. Our interns are Sam Dart, China Holmes, and Brian Harrington. Design and web support comes from Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser. And thanks to David Nassar and Richard Fawal for their support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.